So one day I was driving to University of Michigan to see my son. Uh, during the winter time, I was driving a Jaguar S-Class because that was a company car. My son said, oh, why are you driving a Mondale to see me? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the spirit of the shared platform. But then, as you know, the company, everybody have their own geopolitical issue and then they have their own interest. They split. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech players, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John. I'm your host today from the Asianometry channel. And I have here today Jack Chung, a CEO of MIH, a young man with a young heart. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, we'd like to have some more insight of our lifestyle for you. So I think the uh, best way, I think, to just get started is kind of tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and then uh, a little bit about MIH. I uh, was born in Taiwan. I was raised with uh, Mandarin, Taiwanese, uh, Japanese, uh, you know, English environment. So I get to speak a little bit of everything. And the best uh, thing is in Taiwan is the diversity because a lot of people are actually coming to Taiwan during the 40s and uh, 50s before the century. And uh, my family were here like 400 years ago. You know, Zhen as a family name, as kind of a rebellion name for China at that time, 400 years ago, because <laughs> we flee the country. We came from... Xiamen to uh, Tainan, and then we landed there, and uh, well, the family becomes so big now. So Zheng is really a big name in Taiwan, C-H-E-N-G. Why I name myself Jack? Because uh, one day when I was young, I watched the TV show Jack the Tripper, um, <laughs> and I said, this guy have two girls. So, wow, wonderful. Why don't I just pick up the name, Jack? <laughs> Hopefully, I have more ladies uh, to work with me. So that's the reason of Jack Chan. You went to school actually in Tainan, right? Yeah, I went to school in Tainan, Chengong University, mechanical engineering major. My family's actually from Tainan as well. Oh, yeah, great. We have a, another connection in addition yes. to the first name being Jay. Yes. <laughs> and then how did you find yourself into kind of the electrical vehicle space? That go back to 40 years ago when I first joined Formula Company. During the 80s, I was in uh, Taipei as a chassis engineer for Ford in Taiwan. And we're making the car that actually designed and architectured by either European uh, Ford and then later on the Mazda, where Mazda was part of Ford family. So it's the chassis engineering safety and crash test engineer as a star. I was sent to uh, U.S. during the mid-80s to really see whether there's a chance to export from Taiwan, making the car for North America. So we did that with about 30,000 units of uh, product called Laser, which was uh, marketed in the Canadian market. So I was responsible to federalize this vehicle to make sure the safety standards up to the Canadian law. I was then sent to Australia. At that time, before China even ramping up, Ford's headquarters was in, for Asia Pacific, was in the Melbourne. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was there, and my second son was born in uh, Melbourne. Oh. Uh, so we got a pretty diversified family. My wife and myself um, were both from Taiwan, but my younger son was born in Melbourne. My eldest son was in uh, Taipei. 
mm-hmm. and then we migrate to uh, Canada. Oh. After that, I live in UK for a while, Melbourne, UK, Canada, and eventually being through all the civilization, <laughs> form of the company say, hey, there's a place that you have to go, China. Yeah. So during the uh, early day, I think as you probably know that China was uh, under development and uh, we, we went to China during the 90s. Oh, really? Where in China? I started from Nanchang. Uh-huh. That's uh, pretty primitive at the time. <laughs> Jiangxi province. Ah, yeah. Then I live in also Chongqing and Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing, and I was in Changsha and Guangzhou too. So wow. Um, after about 26 years with Ford, managing the supply chain, the engineering, uh, I left Ford as the vice president for purchasing. Uh, in Greater China. Then uh, I joined Fiat. I was hired by uh, Sergio Marchioni, who passed away, who was then the Fiat Chrysler CEO. The uh, beauty of working with Italian and American is that uh, you get to see the world, right? You go Europe, you go to uh, US, and then you have a lot of diversity to look at. So I have the best cappuccino and the best uh, lasagna ever <laughs> in Italy. And, Enjoy working with different people. At that time, Fiat actually uh, owned Ferrari, Maserati, and Alfa Romeo. So I've been through all these, the whole nine yards. And uh, uh, working with Chrysler, of course, uh, in addition to Ford's world, as you know, Ford, we did the Jeep and also uh, the uh, uh, Dodge you know, the Ram, there's a lot of products that uh, we deal with. So I was at a point during the uh, year 2014 and 15, I was thinking, well, I've been through all the automotive. I need to figure out something new to do. So the EV is really coming along. Got the call from Beijing, their uh, internet players, uh, JD.com and also um, Tencent. Everybody in the internet industry, they started to you know, cooking on a EV strategy. And they need to find somebody who know how to do the car because you can put PPT on, you know, onto everything. Uh, so they asked me whether I should uh, join them. So we joined the uh, founded NIO. NIO? Yeah. NIO oh, wow. is the new brand uh, seven years ago in China. So the journey started 2015, 2018. We pulled off together. Uh, SUV, the first EV for Neo called ES8. And what we did for the last three years during the 2016 to 2017 and 18 was 2015, we do the Formula E, the racing. 2016, a supercar launch in London. It's called EP9 for Neo. It's a limited version. And then 2017, we actually uh, launched the vehicle. So within 30 months, Launched the vehicle and a skateboard and EV architecture with the body style. That vehicle was uh, the first vehicle for Neo. What were some of the challenges of kind of launching a vehicle so fast? The challenge is that uh, if you abide to the the rule of the traditional OEMs, OEM mean original equipment manufacturers like Ford or like Toyota or like General Motors, you'll be seeing this vehicle a very disciplined in the testing process. You need to finish one gate and then close it and then move to the next mileage. But if you are doing this, development time for a vehicle would take at least three and a half years to four years. 
because of uh, the testing requirement, because of different arrangement, because of the hierarchy of organization. But when you move faster with a simulation of computerization and you simulate in the computer, and then you overlapping your testing based on the confidence level that you know the EV is a cleaner architecture than the combustion engine. So you do reduce by overlapping the gates and the milestone. So I can squeeze down to uh, John for 30 months, start from scratch. You must have been working like really long, crazy hours at that time. Oh yeah, but you know, for car industry, people all work like this. But the beauty of this is because we have a global team, we put a design office in Munich, Germany. We put a software team in uh, San Jose, California. Then we put all the engineering in Shanghai and put the manufacturing in Hefei and Nanjing. So you're 24-7 in three time zones, right? So whatever you get is the efficiency of the globalization and the global team. And we are actually pre-COVID, we are working like that already, virtually. And then um, how did you end up with uh, MIH now? It's a, a long story because I knew Foscon founders, Terry Gore, about 20 years ago. He always wanted to do the car, and, <laughs> and you know, a phone manufacturer, a computer manufacturer to do a car is like mumbo jumbo. <laughs> it's a challenge for him. So really after uh, iPhone and the computer and also all the things that Foscon has manufactured electronically, there's really a great chance that EV popping up. If you consider EV as a computer on wheels rather than car, and Making MIH splash is like you are putting together a platform like Android. You're bringing all the open uh, system to the other guys, the best talent of the world to do it. When you have that platform, it's not a closed loop and it's agnostic. Some people say MIH is make it happen. Yes, I say make it happen is MIH. So some people say money is here. Yes. Some people eventually understand MIH actually is a logo with a half complete vehicle, meaning this is a wheel and a battery pack. Ah, right? I see. But only half complete. On top of it, what you're going to do for the user experience, you can put it on software and hardware and make sure that you're focusing on the user cases and the lifestyle. So MIH's mission is sort of like to bring the engineering to end users, right? Or is it kind of like an open sourcing? You mentioned Android, right? So what is that sort of the goal for EVs? The goal is to stimulate and then inspire next for those people that they never have a chance to work for a big OEM because it's such a rigid process for them to go bidding and then do all this uh, you know, benchmarking and try to get a business, which already there's a supplier base for the traditional guy. For the new guy, again, there are startups, people like in the West Coast, there's a, a lot of new brands for EVs. They never have a chance to get the components and also the architecture manufacturer to support them because they are startup, they are not you know, funding sufficient. So 
MIH provide a bridge so we can actually get a lot of new startups into this consortium and also also leveraging the manufacturing the suppliers the capability of trading. They all join the consortium and then helping each other and make the next EV platform less development time, more competitive cost base, and also attached to the users. So that's the whole purpose of the consortium. Having said that, I think uh, also there is a new generation of thinking that after COVID, I think people know if you don't cooperate, you're going to be bumping into a lot of challenges, just like nobody talking when the COVID started. But the global platform is that country needs to talk to different country. Otherwise, uh, we will never kill that germ. That's the things. Cooperation collaborate and then make a working group and open to the module and standardization for the user. Is there any similarities between what MIH is doing kind of right now and what happened maybe in the history of traditional automaking before? There are some incidents that I can pick up. One is like the merging of the company. There is a lot of merging uh, happening before Ford, Mazda, Jaguar, Land Rover, all merging the one group and Volvo, right? And then they split because everybody's closed loop eventually. They develop their own country supplier. They develop their own domain knowledge and technology. They don't share. But at a point of time uh, in Japan for Mazda, in US for Ford, and in Europe for Volvo and Jack Land Rover thought their cost base is too high and they spend too much time developing individual vehicles. So they put the platform together. So at one time, the Ford Mondeo platform and Jaguar S-Class and Volvo S60 are actually a shared platform. Really? Yeah. Wow. So one day I was driving to University of Michigan to see my son. Uh, during the winter time, I was driving a Jaguar S-Class because that was a company car. My son said, Oh, why are you driving a Mondeo to see me? <laughs> so that's the spirit of the shared platform. But then, as you know, the company, everybody have their own geopolitical issue and then they have their own interest. They split. Same thing like a Renault and Nissan. Right, right. That's a merging case and then now also is breaking away. What are some of the challenges of trying to avoid kind of what's happened before in the traditional automaker space for something like hair? Well, it's an organization. It's all about the Japanese want to talk to French or the U.S. guy, they need to talk to maybe somehow Chinese and make sure they leverage the best talent in the world. But unfortunately, the recent geopolitical issue is splitting the world again. So I think the collaboration as an organization, I'm just talking business, I'm not talking politics, is really to bring everybody work together. There needs to be a platform and we bring as many new technology, matching the user case rather than just a technology and it doesn't work. So that's why, John, I told you about lifestyle. The lifestyle is all about whether you will enjoy in your smart cabin better than before. If you look at instrumentation and if you want GPS, what do you do? You're going to bring your iPhone. You will never use the in-car GPS or instrumentation. That's the whole thing because the user experience is that everything is now coming to the phone. On the instrumentation, which was developed three, four years ago, is out of date or obsolete. So the best thing is that you better have a lifestyle. Having this phone of yours 
put all your app in there, it can be transferred into the instrumentation. That's why CarPlay is now popular. But it's not good enough because all this transaction and all these things are made by the phone company, it's not by the car company. So if the car company need to transform, they need to make the user case as good or even better than the phone. So when you get into the car, you don't use the phone to do the CarPlay. That's pretty challenging, right? Because you're kind of going right with the big software companies like Google and Apple, right? Yeah, but with uh, the recent AI you know, progress, you have a chance to make all the development in a short period of time. And even Google and you know Siri need to compete with ChatGPT because it's better user case, right? They're smarter, they answer you quicker, and they make better articles. They know even better that those guys, they haven't got onto. So I think ChatGPT or the Microsoft the world, they are making the user case and then they go back and develop the technology to match it rather than the other guys is doing the technology and say, hey, guys, use it. Can you give me an example of kind of like a technology that MIH maybe has recently adopted into its platform that really helps with the user case? I was afraid that you're going to ask the uh, autonomous drive and all these things, but... Uh, who knows when the autonomous drive is going to come, right? Because there are a lot of complexity of regulations and also the not technology-wise, but it's more with the environment, the regulation, and the road condition, the update of the map. But we're already covered that. I think the challenging is that the infrastructure that will help the future, not only autonomous drive, but also so-called the user case. When government in Taiwan or in the U.S., they want to make sure the vehicle software security is not to be hacked. You need to put a regulation and trying to prevent those things that are developed is to the hacker's advantage. So somehow there are protocols that you need to be done at the government level and to make sure everybody is working based on that discipline. As a manufacturer or as an innovator, we have to draft a proposal for government to approve. That's one thing uh, we need to push for it. The other thing is we need to also educate the user because of all these things that's happening. It's too fast and consumers need to pick up with it. Otherwise, this old generation and new generation gap is going to create some chaos. Young people like you guys, you have no problem getting into the software, bringing up all this user case, the APP, API, and so on. Sometimes I have to pick up and learn and understand it. I lost interest after I read for two minutes, right? So how do I bring those customers with a more user-friendly, simpler, and uh, easy to deal with kind of a device? That's the challenge that I really need to think about. And that's the lifestyle. What's been Foxconn's, like your work with Foxconn been like? Are they bringing any resources or are they kind of like, yeah, you kind of do your own thing on your side? Well, I think Chairman Liu has been a very supportive of the MIT Consortium. He's also the chairman of the consortium as a starting point. But really, Foxconn doesn't really intervene into an open system. In fact, Foxconn will benefit from leveraging the open system that partners, you know, is contributing to the platform. For instance, if there's a security, co an OTA company, they develop something and in the consortium that we discussed, this could be standardized and to be used as uh, like the Moderna of the world for EV. 
So it's a package, it's a software to prevent being hacked. So they put it as standard. If you want to use it, it's an open system. You download it, put it into a vehicle, it works. Foxconn then leverage that to put it on all the vehicles they want to develop and then share with others. So you make the volume bigger. Of course, there are some monetization process to be made. When the volume bigger, everybody's cost going down. So that's the spirits of it. And Foxconn being a supporter as initially funding this uh, consortium, but in fact, all the members are also funding it with a membership uh, fee. So this is more of a transparent, you know, there's a governance process and make sure everybody when their own IP are being protected within their own company. But when they contribute and come into the consortium, develop together a solution, this IP is co-owned. Just like when YouTube was developed, right, from the uh, Android system, they say, well, you can share it and everybody can download it. But when you started to use it more, there are monetization process that Google is going to make, right? But because the volume is so big, so you monetize it easier. What do you say about to potential partners who worry about, like, for example, some customer who wants to use, like, the platform you built and they're going to build a car on top of it? You mentioned a little bit before, but like, are there any concerns about like, okay, there's no differentiation between this EV that uses one platform and this EV that uses the same platform before? Like, is there any worry with that? I think you would be worried about the uh, uh, hardware more. People want to do SUV and they want to do a small car, right? Passenger car. How do you try to leverage that? So for the standardization process and modularization, we do have different scales, small middle and large for the hardware, like powertrain. If you have a 40 kilowatt motor, and then you have also a choice of 60 and 80 and 100. So if anybody want to use it for different architecture, they can pick it up and use it. For an SUV, 40 kilowatts won't work. So they pick up 100. But because of the standardization process in the consortium, I make the diameter of the motor the same. I just elongate. So it, to enhance a better power by different length. So the cylinder actually is getting longer, the motor is working. So these are the standard. And then I can actually uh, commonize a lot of components using the standard and then minimize the cost. That's one hardware thing. Software is easier because software, you are bringing it to the level of this is 1.0, three months later 1.1, then 1.2, Next year is 2.1, 2.2. So it's easier for software. So the software player are even happier to join the consortium because they thought this is great. An open platform and we can talk to each other very openly and make sure that application could be met to not only the new startup OEM brand, but also the traditional one. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about you know an EV being more like a computer on wheels, right? Can you kind of break down for us just like the essential parts of like your average electric vehicle? The computers have a drive system and also have a power supply. So if I look at the EV, because the skateboard is like a battery, a powertrain, maybe somehow having a gearbox because of high, low speed, but it's basically an e-motor unit and then the inverter. So it's very similar like a computer. I can make it cleaner. The parts count are much less, including like if you're counting at about 3,000 part number as a non-repetitive part number for a car, for EV, I uh, can come down to 2,000. There's a huge reduction 
And I can also leverage, like if you're building a computer, you do need to put a motherboard first. For building a car, traditionally before it was like, oh, you have a combustion engine, you have exhaust manifold, you have a many uh, fuel tank. All this, you have to find a place to slot that in. But for EV, it's clean. It's just, just like computer. It's escapable. Put everything on top of it and make sure the software is up to the user's case. What's kind of like the hardest thing about producing like an EV at scale? Battery is a challenge. <laughs> Gives the raw materials uh, fluctuation, the nickel, the lithium, and so on. But uh, the world is there for us to explore. We need to make sure the raw material have a sufficient supply. That's why there are some country now within our corporation Really, we have to tie it at a government level to make sure a raw material supply. Do you think that counterbalances the lack, the reduction in parts in an EV, the difficulty of sourcing those raw materials? If you're on a global basis, no. But if you are cutting yourself as like geopolitical issue, yes. Meaning if you do everything within that big country, it's not just one country can do everything, uh, let alone now we have war in the other side of the world. So... We need to overcome the challenge of the global uh, supply. What's kind of your take on the current state of the EV market? Like, is there too many EV cars, too many EV brands? Or if you know, I raised like $100 million or something and I wanted to bring a car to the market, is it too late? Like, what is kind of your feel about potential market entry here? Well, free markets is never too many, but it will consolidate. My take on the EV, because year over year is a double fold of a growing. If there is a hundred brands in one market, after three to five years, it will consolidate into three to six major brands, and the rest of it will be merged. It's just like for automotive industry in the U.S., you know, a hundred years ago, there's a whole bunch of brands, and they disappeared. They vanished. Only General Motors and Ford and Chrysler survived. Same thing is going to happen in all the other big markets. And then the global. Four is now global. They're everywhere in the continent. Also, some other guy, Toyota is the biggest one. They are everywhere too. So you will see the global efforts now. We have to figure out what we have to do when the T-brand is beating everybody up. These guys are going to have to also fight back. But they're too busy fighting back on the private market. Let's bring to the next subject of this logistics company, the government fleet, uh, the leasing company. They're not being taken care. We need to take care of those guys. Because there's a lot of combustion engine, like postal trucks and like regular oh, yeah. items too. Yeah, we need to make sure they are electrified. Otherwise, how are you going to resolve the CO2 issue? Does MIH have like a bus skateboard too? We're now working with a logistics company, and uh, we'll see how their volumes ranking up. We will provide three to five tons of a truck for the logistics company. We're now looking for a partner to cooperate. Buses are very interesting, like market. They're very local. I've seen like there's so many different small companies I've never heard of making bus that I just rode a bus to get here, right? Like never heard of the brands making those bus. Do you think like EVs are going to get to price parity with combustion engines? There's a hockey stick and uh, it's a downward for the combustion and the and a hockey stick for the uh, uh, EV. I will foresee 
when the battery charging that hit about 800 kilometer per charge, and there will be a subsiding effect for the combustion and also the regulation. There is a threshold of 2030 or 2035, depends on which country. So the day to come is right 2028 to 2030. All this is going to be all changed because if you think about your next car will be uh, stopped by the government as a combustion engine, are you still going to buy it? No. Five years ahead, you'll stop buying it. Do you think those like Ford or Toyota will like going to kind of try to get to some efficiency rating that's kind of on par with like an EV? Oh, yeah. I think uh, now, as you know, the Toyota's organization changed. They need to catch up because there's a day that all this so-called ICE, internal combustion, compared to the EV, the operating costs and also the mileage for one tank to drive. Now, a tank can only drive about 600 kilometers or 650. But if I say one charge, you can go beyond 800. You're done. What's stopping like Toyota or like Ford or one of these big ICE companies from coming to MIH say, we want to join too? You never know. There are people already coming along the way. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you, but uh, I think they understand that it's a challenge to do everything their own. The other thing is that for the vehicle price, as you say, $30,000 car, that's the bracket. And uh, Tesla has moved down to the arena from Tesla Model Y, Model 3, the future Model 2 is coming up. And they still have profits. Unbelievable, right? Because uh, the scale is going up. So the supplier looking at their more business year over year double. Of course, even the low margin supplier get into it. But if the combustion engine suppliers, they're going down, who want to make that business? Of course, the volume is smaller and the, the cost is going to be higher. So I will be seeing soon this hockey stick uh, in the next three to five years. And uh, uh, the cost for EV with Tesla making the lead, all the other guys are going to go to a 30000 even $20,000 of EV. I did a video actually that I never finished, but it's like Taiwan's really good at like smartphones, electronics. They never really made a car. Like they're never really, really good at cars. What is Taiwan's opportunity with like this upcoming EV market coming the way it is? Well, Taiwan has been electronic powerhouse. Even though Taiwan does not really have a total capacity for a car, I think our partner of the Taiwan brands they're not making more than 100,000 cars per model. But if you look at on a global basis, you have a chance. So if you are seeing Taiwan is making global computer on wheel, Taiwan is making it, right, for the phone and computer. So you should not have the mindset of making car in Taiwan. You should making a computer on wheel. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Very interesting insights as well. Yeah, John, I hope that one day when you go into the car, the car's going to talk to you and then they say, well, I need services, but I don't really need you to drive me to the garage. <laughs> and then you're going to say, okay, what do you want me to do? And the car will say, well, you know, I need a meta to do the remote fixing of my problem. <laughs> uh, so replace this and talk to your garage guy through the virtual display. And all these things is a lifestyle. It's going to happen because nobody will be the same after COVID. <laughs>